0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
1: I'm sorry. My dad can get cranky sometimes. As your father, I forbid you to marry. He sure has a temper on him.
2: He likes to shout, I like to smile. You <laughs> cheesy old cornball. Imagine me stroking your clitters with a pink feather. Yeah. That's what I am. I'm a cheesy old (laughs) cornball.
1: I kinda like it. Hey! Stop talking to the customer and help dad with his shorts! Imagine if I farted now.
2: I love you. Like this? I don't know if I'm doing it right, Janet. Is this right?
1: Kiss my juicy cherry lips.
2: Dad might be the greasy stranger.
1: I'm officially dating Janet. I'm a spider man of a cocktail. Bullshit artist. Bullshit artist. I call bullshit on that. Bullshit artist. Yes. You're covered in horse shit. You're be my forever love. You claimed her pussy, but you never claimed her art. <laughs> 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 it loves me i love her you're making a big mistake i am the greasy strangler you're all right braden
2: thanks dad that means a lot coming from you Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm here with my good friend, Skiz Cizik, and we're talking about The Greasy Strangler. Hey. One of my favorite films of the year. And uh, Skiz, if I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps one of yours as well? Oh, absolutely. Well, I guess the Guy Madden film counts as last year. Yeah. My two favorite new films
0: of the decade, I think. When did you first see The Greasy Strangler? Uh, I saw it back in May at the Maryland Film Festival. Completely not expecting to see something like that. I mean, I don't expect to see something like that at any film festivals. It's so up my alley. You know, I go to a lot of festivals. I like what I see, but rarely do I see films that are where I feel like I was the target audience. And this was one of those cases where I just, my mouth just hung open the whole time. Like,
2: wow, how did this get made? (laughs) Like, this is so right, right for me. I felt exactly the same way. And within like, what? Ten minutes, maybe even five minutes of watching this film, I was just like, oh, my God, this feels perfect. Yeah. Just these odd characters in this wonderful world. I mean, odd turns of phrase that they're doing. And everybody is very, very serious about everything that's happening in this film. Yeah. It's the story of two men and a a young woman eventually comes into it. And perhaps we could say she comes between them. It's a father and son, Big Ronnie and Big Braden, And eventually uh, Janet comes into the picture. And Big Ronnie is a disco tour guide uh, showing people all the hot spots where many of yesteryear's best disco hits were recorded.
1: Who likes the Bee Gees? Well, this is where they came up with that fabulous, funky song, Night Fever. What do you mean, came up with? They wrote the lyrics while they were standing in this doorway. Why were they standing in this doorway? They were waiting for a friend to pick them up. They were going out for Chinese and celebrating his birthday. Can you verify that place? Trust me, I know disco.
0: And by coincidence, they're all in that same neighborhood. I know. It's
2: crazy, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, disco people. you remember the earth, the wind, and the fire? Did you know that all three of them lived in that apartment up there?
2: And I love the chemistry between these guys. Michael St. Michaels, who plays Big Ronnie, and Sky Elabar who plays Big Braden. Wonderful. Watching these two guys fight and Bicker and fart at each other, <laughs> and walk around naked—well, sort of naked. Uh, you
0: could say walking around with their junk hanging out, and think that that's naked, but I'm not so sure. Well,
2: when, when they're not doing that, they're walking around with those wonderful like knit outfits. Yeah, that just make me itchy and hot looking at them. <laughs> hot? Not not in a. You mean like temperature wise? Well, oh, I was hot and bothered. <laughs> I was hot and bothered this whole way through especially you know watching big ronnie just eat so much greasy food yeah i gotta admit that kind of turned my stomach if, if there's one thing in the
0: film that turned my stomach it was that it wasn't the people with their eyes
2: popping out of their heads or nah nah, i can stomach that yeah when he dips his dog in that guy's vat of grease
1: this isn't right I need more grease on this. I need more oil. Sir, I cannot do
2: that. It's
1: against regulations. I could lose my license. I need this oily. I need this to lubricate the world. I need this dog to have some grease on it. So when I eat it, the grease will lubricate my throat. Sir, I cannot do that. It's not safe to use too much oil. I could. I repeat... I could lose my license. You probably think I'm the greasy strangler. That's why you won't grease my dog.
2: I got a real kind of... Uh, I'll just put it out there. I got a real kind of Napoleon Dynamite vibe from this film. Yeah, I think the the
0: style of the dialogue... I guess it is a natural style of dialogue for some people, but it's not a very normal... like Especially in the movies, you don't tend to see that kind of speech in the movies because it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's it's kind of the
2: speech pattern of the person that comes up to you on the street that you don't want to talk to. The ones who are asking you for money or the ones who are like trying to tell you that President Obama visited Mars?
0: Yeah, the, the the Mars
2: one. And I think also the soundtrack with kind of that more like keyboard, Casio type sound to it, I think that also helped put me into that mindset. Yeah. I, I liked how the soundtrack...
0: It almost sounds like an insult to the film, but I like how the the soundtrack would remind me that I'm watching a low budget movie, right? You know, because normally, you know, it would be a rock band or like some really well produced score or whatever. And then here was this sort of low fi electronic stuff that, you know, I'm sure was more an aesthetic choice than a budgetary choice, but. Knowing that it doesn't take much to make that music, budget-wise, just sort of made me, you know, it, it brought me back to, oh, yeah, you know, this is like, these are just some cool people that got together and made a film. They probably didn't have a ton of money, but this music was good enough,
2: you know, and it works perfectly
0: in that that, that way.
2: Right, and the movie looks so good for what it is. It's like, it doesn't need to look as good as this. Right, yeah, I mean, it, this could have been shot
0: on just, you know, the well, it could have been shot on an iPhone. Or, you know, just the the cheapest DSLR. But I am I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb and just guess that they shot on like a black magic or a
2: red. Like they went all out and did it as professionally as, as possible. Yeah, and it looks great, it sounds great, it's it's very, very well made. And yeah, just the acting for me is top notch, man. It just even when you don't have like the best actors in the world, they're put into the right places where their deficiencies actually add to the performance. Right. I love this in any movie that does it where
0: every character is a live action cartoon, you know? And this, this is like a perfect example of that. Like I think of, you know, forbidden zone and Existo,
2: and then, you know, this is definitely up there with those. Like the guy at who who wears a pig nose for like no good reason, but that's his thing. And he just lives in this yeah. world. The whole world is just so off kilter. It looks like a part of Los Angeles, but it feels like
0: some place that none of us could ever find. And it's kind of a place that I'd like to go to, though. Um, Yeah. (laughs) As long as I knew I could get out of it.
2: Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the director of The Greasy Strangler, Mr. Jim Hosking. I want to know a little bit more about you. How did you get your start in film?
3: I started working actually at MTV and I was doing little, kind of little commercials sort of for them, you know, the ones that are just the sort of weird little commercials with the MTV logo at the end that could be about sort of anything in particular. And I was, I was sort of writing those and then started directing some. And after that, I was signed by a production company for sort of commercials and music videos. And I was sort of making some of that, that kind of stuff and then made some short films and. I suppose one of them got into Sundance about five years ago, a short film I made called Renegades, which I think some people saw and liked. And then they got in touch with Andy Stark, who is <laughs> Ben Wheatley's producer. And Andy sort of started working with me on a project. And, um, even though that one's yet to happen, we did end up making a, like a, a short film for the ABCs of Death 2. That he produced, that I directed, and then uh, ended up feeding into the Greasy Strangler. Anyway, that's quite a long-winded answer for you.
2: Well, were you working at MTV uh, New York or MTV London?
3: I was working at both, actually. I sort of started at the one in New York and then uh, moved back to London. But I was, yeah, I was living in New York at the time.
2: Would I have seen any of your bumpers?
3: Uh, I don't think so, actually, because I think quite a lot of the ones that I did, I was, I was writing, and then the ones that I did direct were kind of smaller weirder ones and i was definitely quite out of step with i suppose just the sort of general work that was being made there there was a lot of stuff that sort of felt like it was kind of quite trying to be quite hip or trying to be quite current and i think that i've always i've always kind of uh, gone against the grain a little bit i'm not sure why but i sort of have quite a sort of contrary nature so i I was i was making i can remember there's one Sort of campaign that I did for a TV show they had that was about sex. I think, like young people and sex. And I did these ones with this old man who was hanging out with a with a puppet who was a dragon who was really obsessed with sex and wanting to know know all about sex and kept sort of asking the old man sort of prying questions about um, whether he had ever had any threesomes and you know what it was like to have sex and stuff. And the old man just really didn't want to talk about it and kept saying to him that he needed to watch that the, well, the, the dragon should watch this show on MTV and that's how he could learn about it. So I was kind of doing stuff like that, which I thought was funny, but I don't know, I sort of got the feeling that people were a little bit perplexed by it, but I feel I've always had a sort of perplexness
2: around me. So how long were you making commercials for?
3: I still do them, you know, when I, when I need to earn some money. I'd say pff, about 14 years or something now, quite a long time.
2: I have looked at a lot of the commercials on your reel, and I have to say I'm very impressed with them. And I want to know, when did you meet uh, Sam Disunayake?
3: I met Sam when I was making a T- this TV commercial in L.A., and he came in, and I don't know. I just felt like he he just seemed so so extraordinary to me, or just really appealed to me in the way that he is sort of quite odd, obviously. But then at the same time, he's very, very sort of sweet and... Very genuine and sincere and sort of quite innocent and I mean I'm always really, really drawn, I think, to that combination of oddness and and sort of sweetness or innocence and um yeah, I mean he's you know I mean he's an Indian guy with a with a very high voice and a lisp, and he sort of blinks quite furiously but but beyond that he's also very proper and like you know he's a real sort of gentleman, so I cast him immediately and then I've worked with him. I've worked with him a few times, I think, actually now. When did you meet or how did you meet Toby? I met Toby I would say maybe twelve years ago or something now. Um he was storyboarding some T V commercials for me and he's and he's done that to this day, but I think within about a year and a half or something of us working together, we would always talk about films and talk about you know the kind of films that we liked, and I always found his taste to be quite strange he was he seemed to sort of listen exclusively to hip hop and only be interested in in action films and yet he was clearly very very bright and deep thinking sort of quite philosophical and i I couldn't tell if he was sort of sincerely into this this stuff or whether he was sort of being ironic or posturing or something. but we started talking about maybe writing something together. I think he was asking asking me whether I'd ever wanted to make any films and I said yeah of course you know I've been I've been writing scripts for five years but not in a particularly sort of committed way but just sort of writing really peculiar completely uncommercial probably unfinanceable scripts if uh, financeable is a word and then we decided to have a crack at writing something and we wrote our first script together I would say probably it was probably about nine years ago and we've probably written about 10 or something together now but uh yeah we're always having ideas for new scripts first one that we wrote was called um diabolical exploitation and i don't know quite how many people we've shown it to i remember showing it to my first ad who i worked with a lot at the time who absolutely loved it because it has this sort of very peculiar last i suppose the last act of it or something is these it was about these kind of uh immigrants who are sort of force-fed drugs to make them sort of work really hard in these sort of factories and stuff and they end up building this massive kind of viking boat for exploiters of these immigrants i'm not really expressing myself really, but anyway it's kind of of a very surreal peculiar script but that was the first one that we wrote but yeah we've written we've written a bunch since then i mean but they're sort of i would say the greasy strangler probably sits Squarely in the middle of sort of how commercial or uncommercial they may be, we've done. We've written some that are more, more peculiar and less, less enticing to potential financiers.
2: I know that this is a very annoying question, but I have to ask it anyway. Where does an idea of like the Greasy Strangler come from?
3: Just to even get to sort of where, like where that kind of idea comes from is it, It's not even about. You know, what the, what the script will end up being about. I think it's more just a kind of like a, like a mindset of what is it that, you know, that I'm feeling that I want to be doing at that particular time? Or what does, you know, what does it strike me and Toby that we want to do? You know, when you decide that you want to make something that's really going to stand out and do its own thing and, and you want to, make a film or or write a script that sort of ha- that has very little concessions to sort of how a I suppose to how a script should be conventionally or how a film should be. That's kind of where it started. I think was I, I was feeling after having written some other scripts that I just wanted to write something quicker that was sort of self-indulgent and just totally sort of pleasing myself. And then Toby totally felt the same. And then I suppose from there, you know, we, we had this idea pretty quickly about, um, about this guy sort of being a being a greasy strangler. i mean it was it was it was sort of like this uh image that kind of i feel like it was an image that sort of popped into my head but i may be deluded about it um, i've i've found this email chain between us where it looked like i said that that i wanted to write a script for this actor carl i know in la who's kind of a peculiar guy and then toby replied he could be a greasy strangler and then I replied to Toby, the greasy strangler, but but the way that I also remember it was I sort of remember being in the shower and just having this vision of this guy who was sort of covered in this kind of light brown, kind of sludgy sort of porridgey sort of stuff with a kind of leering look on his face and his arms stretched out like he was sort of wanting to strangle somebody and then i don't really know where these ideas come from, other than i I sort of just I have a lot of visuals that come to mind and and then when something just feels distinctive enough, or different, or odd enough, or or just makes me laugh enough, or if I speak to Toby and we think that th- this thing just feels really sort of magical somehow, then it feels like it's something to pursue, you know. And also, and, and and part of the fun, I think, is to not know how it will end up being, or you know, whether it can even sustain a feature film, or what the story will will be what the other characters will be and just to sort of really embrace the kind of freedom and the insecurity of it because i suppose i i get a little bit um demotivated or or sort of switch off a bit when i feel like feel like it's obvious where i'm heading or that something is kind of feels predictable in any way or feels mapped out it sort of needs to feel it needs to feel more like I don't know whether I should be doing this or not. Like that's probably when I get most excited. But then it is, you know, you you can also feel quite insecure when you're making stuff like that. But but I do like the feeling of um I don't know quite what I think about this. So with something like the Greasy Strangler, it was it was also attracted to me, I suppose, because I don't I don't generally watch any kind of horror films, really, or sort of creature films or anything else. It was kind of very much out of my Well, people say wheelhouse. I can't stand that word, but it's sort of out of, out of what I do. You know, it's not, it's, it's not the kind of thing that I generally would write about. And then that, so that felt really interesting to me. You know, you sort of get yourself in that kind of headset where you just let things kind of come to you a little bit. And it's a bit like dreaming things or something, you know.
2: How organic is the script once it's once you guys have your first or second draft of this? How much does it change from that until it comes to the screen?
3: You're probably asking whether it changes sort of from a you know from a creative point of view. Like I would decide to change this element of it, or to or or to you know shift this scene to somewhere else or whatever else. But I feel like it's kind of affected more by boring sort of logistical issues and and sort of budgetary <laughs> issues than anything else. I mean, I'm quite keen to, once the script is, uh, is kind of written to our satisfaction, I sort of feel like, well, we work sort of quite hard to create dialogue, I think, that we really, really like. And we like the idea of other people speaking these words. And of course, there is some, you know, there's some latitude there. And I, and I definitely encourage improvising at times. But I do kind of like to stick with where the script is to a certain extent because that's just, you know, it's like that's the... That's that's why I'm making this film. It's not like I want to tear it all apart and then create something new or at least so far I haven't done that. Although I am quite... I do quite like the idea of of possibly making a film with no sort of prescribed dialogue and just more like a a list of intentions and and a list of scenes. But so far it's been... It's been very uh, specific sort of peculiar dialogue, I suppose, so therefore you kind of want to stick quite close to that to, to preserve that singular world.
2: You touched on this a little bit before, but I am curious as far as the nuts and bolts as, as far as how the film got made, you know how was this project financed and you know you got the backers and all of this kind of stuff.
3: I was working on another um, film project with Andy Stark who runs Rook Films with Ben Wheatley. And while working with Andy, he asked me if I wanted to uh, shoot one of the short films that would make up the ABCs of Death 2. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I made the G for Grandad uh, segment of that. And the ABCs of Death 2 was produced by Drafthouse Films, so Tim League and also Anne Timpson of Timpson Films. And I guess they liked what, what I did. And... By this stage, I'd shown Andy Stark the script for the greasy Stranger and he and he had really he really liked it although he had one sort of reservation which was that he wondered whether I would ever find any cast who would be prepared to to perform uh, some of the material that's in the script but uh, I sort of felt pretty confident that I could <laughs> and then um and after Anne Simpson and uh Tim Lee had sort of come on board then uh Anne asked me if uh, I would mind him showing the script to Elijah Wood, who runs Spectavision. and, uh, and I said, no, of course, and so Elijah read it, and so did, uh, Josh Waller and Daniel Noah of Vision and they wanted to come on board, and I remember the first thing that they said was, you know, we need to make this film, because if we all don't make it, then nobody else will make it, and it, there was just a sort of feeling of, when you're trying to get a film made, you, you probably either want to make something that's really, that's really got some obvious appeal, and whether it fits in some sort of, Classic kind of genre, or it's just a really sort of well-executed, you know, classic sort of script or thriller or whatever it might be. Or you write something that's just different to to whatever else might be out there. That if you find, you know, it's it's kind of I was lucky to find the right people who wanted to get behind it, but I guess they wanted to finance it and make it because they just, you know, it really sort of tickled them in the same way that it tickled me. But I think that I could have shown it to to almost anybody else, and they wouldn't have wanted to get behind it, so I was very lucky. How did you find Michael
2: St. Michael's and Sky
3: Alabar? Well, I was doing a casting for, actually, what will be my next film, but uh, I was doing a casting for that about six months before I went into pre-production on The Greasy Strangler, and then for that casting, um, Michael St. Michael's came in to read for that, and so I, I met him there, and uh, I just sort of, kept him logged in my head you know i just found him so sort of extraordinary looking in his and his and his manner and i don't know you just you just don't you don't come across people who look like that back in the uk it's just he, he just seems so memorable and and original to me and actually in the same casting i also had uh gil jets who plays um paul who's the who's the blind car wash owner in the Greasy Strangler. He also came in and he, he read with Michaels and Michaels for this other project. And so I, I nabbed him as well. And then I don't know if you asked about Sky Elabar, but Sky, who's the son, I've, I've worked with a couple of times in a couple of short films that I've done. And he was in my head when I was writing the script with Toby. We sort of had Sky in our head, in our heads as the, Some, but it was always a question of who could be, who could be his dad. And so, um, I don't know. When I, yeah, when I thought of Michael St. Michael's, it suddenly seemed to fit into place, whether it was their, their sort of long flowing hair or their, um, their sort of, they, they, they've both got a kind of innocence and sweetness about them again. I suppose, like I was talking about Sam earlier, there's something, there's something I think about all of the characters in the film that, that they're quite endearing and quite sort of guileless. I think that sort of helps because because the film is kind of uh you know is it is quite perverted and it's quite the characters do some pretty reprehensible things in the in the films so it's quite nice they're also quite sweet lovable innocent characters almost kind of like children I think that sort of maybe that's why some people find the film quite disturbing or makes them feel quite uneasy is that is that there's a there's a sort of sweetness that, that, that happens at the same time as the sort of perversion. Maybe is a bit of a pecunia combination.
2: Everybody in the film is fantastic, but I have to say that your two leads, they just, they tear it up. And and, and nothing, you know, not taking away from Elizabeth Durazzo either, because she does an amazing job too. But just that chemistry between Michael St. Michael's and Sky Elabar just... You can just watch them for hours. They are amazing.
3: <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I think some people, judging by a couple of reviews I've read in the last, or the, uh, last sort of twenty four hours, some people might disagree. No, I mean that's the that's the, that's the nature of this film. I think is a sort of, It is definitely quite polarizing. But yeah, I do think they both give it everything, and that's what's that's one thing about this film that, or even the most, you know, the, the my most. Favorite thing about this film is is the sheer sort of gusto and the commitment that the cast give to their performances, and they're just so they're just so so committed to the to the film, and it was really touching and and I think it just it just makes the film feel very special. I think I, I think it's that's what I, what I was wanting when I was casting it was I was I was wanting to cast unknowns and and to create a new kind of weird little world for, you know, for the viewer to sort of drop in on so that they could feel completely surprised by it and, and sort of lost within it. And I always imagine that if you saw a trailer for The Greasy Strangler this was even before casting it, that you should feel like you didn't really have any reference point on any of the people in the film, or the kind of clothes they were wearing, or where it was, anything about it that it would just feel like this, this strange, like you know, what the hell, what the hell is this? Like, who are these people? And that, and, and that it would feel really sort of committed and sort of powerfully performed, and like with real emotion and sincerity. And so, even though it is obviously quite an absurd film, but at the same time, it's played with such passion and i think that it's 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 quite moving <laughs> in a funny way <laughs> well, to me anyway
2: well you do do a fantastic job of creating this whole world where all of these kind of interesting people all live and where did you end up shooting this at
3: we shot this in the less desirable areas of los angeles i think when i was when i was saying to friends of mine and. Back here in London, I was going off to shoot a film in LA. They were presuming that I was going to go somewhere really, uh, really swanky and live it up and create something rather glitzy. But uh, but it's sort of quite the opposite. We we, (laughs) I mean, as you can see, but we we ended up yeah shooting in a quite a sort of downtrodden area where where the where the house is and the house was really dirty and sort of degraded and. Felt like it, it genuinely hadn't sort of been cleaned for about 40 years. There's a guy living in the house who was a who, who's a sort of colossal hoarder, and um, I suppose it was quite an oppressive environment in a way for the crew to work in. Or at least everybody seemed to be wearing these face masks to try and keep the sort of dust out of their nostrils. But it didn't really bother me that much. But I don't know whether that's just like come from a sort of an older, more archaic country where uh, we're just used to sort of filth and squalor and degradation but yeah so we shot uh, and then we shot downtown in la and we shot uh shot a little bit in hollywood we shot the motel was in hollywood and um, and then we went off to i think it's called Angeles crest there's a forest outside la to shoot um the sort of the, the last part of the film
2: well, I'm amazed that you could find a place where all of these legends of disco had recorded all of these great songs.
3: Well, we were very, very lucky, Mike. It took a lot of planning, but we managed to do it. We managed to find all the legendary disco spots. That's amazing. Yeah,
2: to think that they were all so close to one another as well.
3: I know. Yeah, absolutely. Within spitting distance, they were all, all there. Yeah. Yes, it's not very factual. The film that's be honest. With you. <laughs> Although I don't know, there was a there was a producer friend of mine who read the script quite early on. He said to me very sincerely said um, said Oh, I absolutely love the script, Jim, and also it's really really good to learn quite a lot about disco as well. And I, didn't, I really didn't have the heart of faith say, <laughs> "Come on."
2: I do have some really nerdy questions. No, go for it. What did you end up using for the grease that they were putting on themselves?
3: Gosh, I've been asked this quite a lot, and I have to say I'm not. I can't. I'll say that I'm 100% sure. I do know some of the, some of the ingredients. Well, there's something that, that they use in, like in Alien or whatever, where the, when the alien comes up and John Hurt's stomach and it's sort of dripping with goo, and I think it's called, some, uh, cellulose or, or, or something rather. But there was this substance that's called Ultra Ice, which I think gave it a real sort of greasy kind of sheen, so that was, that was plastered all over, um, the Greasy Strangler, and uh, and it was very 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 icy actually. The stuff it made Michael um really really cold, and uh, yeah, he was he spent his whole time sort of shivering. And had to stand on um, stand underneath heaters in, you know, very sort of side streets and car parks, and sort of chain smoking furiously, shivering. Um, I think he had quite a quite a rotten time. But uh, but beyond that, I think there was there was actually also sort of grease and stuff as well. There was sort of there, but, but but various kind of substances. There were these two two uh, girls in the makeup special effects department who would who had about six buckets and they would they would sort of trawl these buckets around and then slop a load of stuff on Michael for sort of different handfuls of this, like a smear of some brown goo here. here. And I'd sort of say, okay, a bit more brown in the hair. Can I have some more more of this one on the face and this bit down the back and then this bit on his Johnson and then we'd be ready to roll.
2: I could tell that Sky was wearing kind of a, a bodysuit at the end, but when it came to Michael being greasy, was he all natural when he was being covered with this?
3: No, no, no. He was also wearing a suit as well. They were both wearing suits. When I, Yeah, when I was envisaging the film, I, I sort of wanted them to to both be um, naked and covering grease, and then obviously that's totally impractical when it comes to having to sort of reset You know, for shots and whether there's sort of grease on other people's clothing or all over the location, whatever else. But, um, so then we were going to put them in these, uh, skin tight kind of, uh, spandex suits. But those, I think they was the cost of them was quite prohibitive. So it ended up being a sort of slightly thicker suit. And it did end up, it sort of ended up looking a bit more like a suit than I originally intended. But I think that's the, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the hard thing and also the fun thing about making films that are quite ambitious for the you know for the budget is that you do end up seeing everything kind of evolving and then having to sort of react to that and you know they ended up looking a little bit different to how I intended but then that also made the effects in the film the sort of the CGV effects like I wanted those to become a little more exaggerated as as a result of the suits being sort of slightly more obviously like suits. And, you know, you just start, you start sort of, you sort of jiggle things around to try and keep the world feeling like it makes sense. So, if you know what I mean.
2: Was that Michael St. Michael's junk that we were seeing in the film, or was that a stunt cock?
3: That was a prosthetic, prosthetic, yeah. He sort of plugged his real junk into the fake junk, and then uh, then he was ready to go. There was what there's. He was also wearing this sort of uh, his disco costume that had a sort of diamond-shaped panel with a sort of mesh covering that you could see his junk through. And there's one scene where he's sitting with Janet in a park, and he's talking to her about his sort of legendary disco days where he was hanging out with Michael Jackson, and he sort of spreads his legs quite widely, and I really wanted to see his penis within the diamond-shaped mesh window and uh, and it just kept going off to the side and wasn't visible and i sort of went over and um i was saying to michael could you just move it a little bit to the to the right i can't really see it at the moment he'd try and move it and it wasn't really working and i said to him michael can i have a go and try and move it and, and it, he was like yeah, yeah yeah go on go for it and so i started sort of fiddling with this thing and moving it and the I mean, it's not a particularly good story, but I said to him, it was about midnight. It was a really, really long day. And I was sort of thinking, oh, God, really? Is this really what it's come to? This sort of end of a really long day that I'm fiddling with this prosthetic. And I said to him, God, it feels really, really weird, this prosthetic. I thought it was just sort of like a light silicon thing. He said, well, that's not actually the prosthetic you're feeling at the moment. That's my cock. So there we have it. It was quite hard to manipulate, I'll say that much. Can you tell me about who did the music for the film? The music was uh, conceived and performed by Andrew Hung, who is an electronic duo called Fuck Buttons in the UK. And, uh, yeah, Andy makes some um, amazing music on his own that's kind of uh, sort of quite demented sort of uh, electronic music, I suppose, that's sort of, I don't know, it's got this kind of jaunty fun kind of feel, but at the same time feels like it's kind of quite dark and sinister and strange. And it just seemed to just his musical aesthetic, I suppose, just felt like it was just perfectly the right sound for the film. I think that um, I wanted the film to definitely not sound like disco in any way, you know, like I didn't want the music to sound like disco, just in the same way that they were going to these disco Landmarks and the, and the, and those are completely spurious. I also wanted the music to just sound like something else too. Yeah, I sort of showed Andy Hung the the film and had a chat with him about it, but I sort of I kept it pretty pretty loose for him to sort of go where he wanted to because I could I think you try and try and uh, get the most out of your collaborators by really letting them bring a lot of themselves to it. So I don't know. I thought he did a really brilliant job. I love it.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that's fantastic, and it gets stuck in your head too
3: yeah it definitely does it's definitely if you're not into it it's probably the most maddening music on on the planet i think that's I think that's the thing with this film is that you're either you're either really into it or you're really not, and you definitely you definitely see that um you definitely see that with people when they sort of come out they're either sort of very uh energized and infused or or they look like they've just been sort of Smashed around the face with a you know large halibut.
2: Well, I did want to ask, how was the reaction when you showed this at Sundance? Was there a lot of halibut smashing?
3: Well, yes, there was quite a lot of that. Um, well, actually, I tell you what, it was it was interesting because the first screening, which was the I think we were the first of the midnight films to screen on on the Friday night. So yeah, we had a midnight screening, and there was a lot of anticipation I think. But I think that people were maybe thinking that this was gonna be a certain kind of film, like a sort of like a scary film or a I don't know, like a horror film or something. I think it kinda of took them by surprise a lot. I think they were I think some people were probably quite sort of nonplussed or I don't know, just trying to sort of process it. There was a strange strange sort of feeling at the end of the film when I, I kinda of went up to do the Q and A and invited the three main actors up so I invited Sky and Michael and Liz up to do the Q&A and um Charlie ref from Sundance who's moderating the Q&A asked three of them a question first and said so you guys have never seen the film right and they said uh, no and um he said what did you think and they were just completely silent really I think they couldn't think what to say for about 20 seconds and then and then Sky just said oh wow disgusting and that was so- and it was just like I think the people seem to be really I don't know if unnerved is the right word but just just sort of not sure what to think really which I which I think is quite interesting I mean it's nice to go and see films and to sort of feel like you're not quite sure what you think I think then you know then it means that it's it's doing something a bit different, I don't know, making you think in a different way. But, but, but then with the second screening the following day, I, I think that maybe people started talking about the film a bit or something, and so people knew a little bit more what to expect, and it was a really sort of totally different experience. They, they were really raucous and sort of rapturous and really laughing loads and really up for it, and it just seemed to transform overnight. It was, it was quite interesting.
2: And you've played some of what I would consider some of the best festivals for a movie like this to play with Fantasia and Fantastic Fest. I mean, what's the, been the reaction overall? Is it pretty consistent?
3: I've only been to, I think I've only been to four festivals myself. I've been to the the, like Sundance, and then I went to Sundance London. Oh no, I went South by Southwest as well. That was really, really good. I went to, to a festival in the Czech Republic called Karlovy Vary, and that was, that was brilliant, actually. It was really. I sort of. I don't. I don't sit there and watch the whole film each time. I think that would drive me completely balmy, But um, because I really have seen it enough, <laughs> but uh, but I did. I did. I did sit in there for uh, five or ten minutes at the beginning and the end in the Czech Republic, and there were subtitles there as well in Czech. And it was really. It was really fun to see a sort of predominantly foreign crowd just really laughing and getting into it. And I suppose, like in a way, some of the dialogue is quite strange and maybe even if you speak english and or if you're english or american or whatever you know there might be some little moments that you don't quite get but i think with the subtitles you've you just got the feeling that they were really able to sort of get the most out of the madness i think it's gone down pretty well yeah i mean you know i think it's just a fact though with this film and i think with any films that really sort of go somewhere a little bit different the, 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 the some people love that and some people hate it and I think that's just that's just the nature of it it's a bit like i don't know it's a bit like um you know when there's a new musical movement and and you, you either like i mean uh, it's probably a bit of a crass analogy but you think of something like punk and then that comes along and some people are either really fascinated by that or really intrigued or and then other people are just kind of disgusted and sort of think well this isn't music I had another director at Sundance, who was saying to me uh, that he was really keen to see the film and, and I said to him, yeah, well, come along, you know, it's on Friday night, last screening, come and see it, you know? He was like, yeah, 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 you know, I really want to see it, I really want to see it and I was like, yeah, come along, <laughs> come and check it out and he and he came along and then um, after I'd introduced the film, I went to a bar a couple of doors down and he'd walked out of the film, I think after about 20 minutes with his editor, they both walked out and he came to this bar and found me there and was, um, was saying to me, you know, that's not cinema. That film you made, that's not cinema. He just kept saying that to me. And I, I think you just get these extreme reactions, you know, which is, in a way, I think that's really great. I mean, it's kind of how I have felt when I've seen films that I really, really love and connect to, is it's kind of feels like it's almost like a, like it's been made specially for you, you know, it's kind of like being in on something or. I'm not saying it's meant to be elitist, exclusive thing. It's really not. I mean, I I genuinely tried to make something that I thought would be really fun and kind of just an antidote to sort of just predictable, formulaic filmmaking. I just, I thought this is the kind of thing that I would love to see and be surprised by or be ambushed by, you know. I'm constantly looking for looking for films that take me to unexpected places and, and, and often feel quite sort of let down, but um, you can't please everybody.
2: Well, I'll tell you that what you just said about this film feels like it was made for me. That was exactly my reaction. I think that's exactly what I posted on Facebook when I was watching this the first time oh, is brilliant. that this movie feels like it was made for me. And I reached out to another friend of mine who has very similar tastes. And I said, have you seen the greasy strangler? He said, Yeah, I caught it at a festival screening, and it's a movie that's made for us. I'm like, exactly. Oh, that's great, yeah. So it is cinema to somebody. It is cinema to me.
3: Yeah, but also, I mean, what is, you know, (laughs) yeah, but I mean, like, what is cinema anyway? I don't know. I mean, who could, like, I don't know what gives anyone the right to be saying what cinema is. I think that's a bit of a daft thing to say, personally.
2: Thank you so much, Jim. This has been a real pleasure talking with you, and I'm so glad that we were able to connect.
3: Oh, thanks, Mike. No, it's my pleasure. Absolutely, yeah. I hope I've, uh, I've sent something of some interest along the way, <laughs> and I'm really glad you liked it. And I did make it just for you.
2: Oh, thank you. Wow. That was director Jim Hosking talking about the creation of The Greasy Strangler. And yeah, it is now available. I believe it's playing theatrically. I know it's out on VOD. And I have to say that this film is not for everyone. I will not say that everybody is going to enjoy this. And I would say that something like, and I I don't want to just dismiss this and or keep coming back to Napoleon Dynamite, but Napoleon Dynamite is one of those divisive films where it's you love it or you hate it. It's one of those films that was just this big X factor out on Netflix when they were trying to tell what your taste is. They didn't really know what to recommend if you had like, loved that film. And I would say that this is kind of along those lines as far as it's going to be very divisive. There are going to be some people that just think that I'm absolutely insane for recommending it, and then other people, and I hope the right people find this movie, because it is such a joy.
0: I've been really uh, happy seeing lots of posts about it on social media, seeing a lot of other people really excited by it. People that I wouldn't have guessed would, would like this kind of film. It, it it gives me a lot of hope that, and, I, and these are all people I know from the film festival world, so it gives me hope that people are finally growing out of mumblecore and willing to take a risk on something else. And maybe the festivals are starting to realize that there are other kinds of films and there are audiences for those films. At the same time, I hope that it doesn't start a trend where everybody suddenly wants to make the weirdest, you know, where's everybody for so many years has wanted to make the most mumbly film. I hope people aren't going to start trying to make the weirdest film, and outdo each other. Because while that would be really fun for a little while, I'd, I would hate to see it become a
2: genre that I get really tired of. But I mean, if they're all as good as this greasy strand would bring them on, I suppose. I mean, you lived through the uh, film festival submission process when everybody was trying to make the next Reservoir Dogs. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that if everybody was trying to make the next greasy strangler it might be okay i don't know
0: yeah it'd be interesting to see i mean i it, it's funny that you mentioned napoleon dynamite because i don't remember everybody trying to make the next napoleon dynamite you know? <laughs> right that i i would have welcomed that but what what came instead was mumblecore which i i don't mind but i just got really tired of it there was just so much of it I think maybe the reason why that caught on so much is because it does it wouldn't take as much effort to make a Mumble film as it would to make Greasy Strangler or Napoleon Dynamite. I think maybe that's it it's it's effort it's so much easier to make <laughs> like when something really easy to make becomes in style, a lot more people are going to jump on that bandwagon but to make a greasy strangler you have to a, have a, you have to have a great idea you have to have people dedicated to that vision you got to be creative yeah nobody
2: is half-stepping it at, at all in this one
0: right i mean it's a all those roles are, are pretty daring i mean the, the 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 cast i wouldn't have taken any of those roles
2: <laughs> you know, i'm glad they did but i don't think i could have done it yeah i don't see me being able to pull off a, a big braden or any of that stuff i mean not even the uh scandinavian tourist Okay, I guess there were some people in the cast that were, would be a little easier to play than others. But Do you know what I think I saw the other day? Um, you know, that new Tom Hanks movie? Uh, well, not that new anymore, but Sully. Yeah. And on Jimmy Kimmel, I want to say, they were doing a parody of the Sully film, but it was a movie about Tom Hanks where Sullenberger was playing Tom Hanks. <laughs> and Tom Hanks's rival was being played like this Kind of like crazy guy who's was like, "I'll get you, Tom Hanks." He was being played by Sky Elibar, I believe. Oh wow! So it was really nice. Like, oh hey, I know that guy. I mean, he's got such a distinct voice, and he's kind of got like this almost Judah Friedlander look to him, yeah. but a little more scraggly. But yeah, it was like, oh, this is a surprise. So I'm excited to see him popping up more.
0: I did the Q and A at Maryland Film Festival for one of the screenings, and Sky was there. Uh, Sky Elibar if I remember correctly, he he put on a ton of weight to play that role. I seem to remember him, him telling us that because I was thinking that he didn't look the same in person as he did in the film, which, you know, I, that's that's the, the magic of movies. But he had mentioned that he'd put on a bunch of weight just to play that role. He was wearing one of the official Greasy Strangler knit caps. Have you seen this?
2: Yeah, it looks like Grease, but Greasy.
0: Yeah, it's like pink and everything. I think he said that at, at Sundance, they ran into the uh, the producer from the movie Grease, who was really offended by his hat. He's like, you can't do that. He's like, we did.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's like, what do you mean we can't do it? I'm wearing a hat. Yeah, you can't really copyright a font. I'm sorry. Yeah. A font. Well, I suppose you can. Yeah. But... A font in the shape of a car. But Right. <laughs> I just couldn't get over his performance and Michael St. Michael's performance. I mean, just totally fearless. And really, um, Elizabeth Durazzo as well. I mean, she. Pretty much bears it all in the film, and it's nice to see an actual woman who's got real curves and everything, not your typical, you know, uh, uh, a twiggy kind of, uh, you know, fey, angsty young actress that you would maybe see in some of these uh, mumblecore films that you're talking about. Right. And, you know, I, I thought she was beautiful.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's a, Yeah, you're right. You don't see that body type, especially naked in movies very often when, unless it's you know meant to shock and offend or, or disgust or whatever in, in this case it sh- it was shocking. I mean everything in the movie was shocking but it wasn't
2: offensive it was, you know I, I thought she was very attractive in, in this film. Yeah, and she is, again, completely fearless with the role. And it was great that she's the center of this love triangle, which is, you know, very unusual for someone of her body type to be that. And she, again, gives a terrific performance. She just fits into that kind of whacked out universe that this film presents to us. I mean, delivering lines like Rudy Tootie Disco Cutie over and (laughs) over again
0: (laughs) with that much conviction. Uh, yeah, she was <laughs> she was wonderful. I don't really know her uh, from anything else. I'm I'm looking at her IMDb page right now, and
2: I would not have recognized her <laughs> you know, from the pictures on IMDb. Oh yeah, no, without that crazy curly wig and stuff, and yeah, she she looks completely different. I can't say all natural because we kind of saw her all natural, but completely different with her regular uh, hair and makeup on. Kudos to the. Uh the makeup department i already mentioned those amazing knit outfits that they were in her outfits are pretty amazing as well i mean everybody looks so good in this and just kind of like weird hand-me-down kind of stuff yeah. you know or i mean or custom outfits i mean big paul he's definitely a, a a snazzy dresser wait which one's big paul i think he's the guy who runs the uh, car wash oh, okay yeah
0: I'm I'm just sitting here thinking about the film and like these scenes keep popping to my head that the scene where uh, it's a big Ronnie talking to what's her name? Janet Mm -hmm. on a, on a park bench and the comic timing in the editing where it suddenly cuts to a wide shot and he's doing like an extreme man spread (laughs) (laughs) and it was just sort of like the scene already is like hilariously absurd and then it just with one edit
2: it gets even more absurd Uh, uh, yeah i can't wait to watch this film again oh i know it's one of those where when i watched it the first time i was just like i can't wait to see this again and i can't wait to share it with people yeah i can't wait to see which friends
0: i recommend it to that that come back and and hate me for life (laughs) i've lost friends over forbidden
2: zone so I'm sure I'll lose some over Greasy Strangler. Well, at least with Greasy Strangler, I mean, it wears its weirdness on its sleeve, and it's right there from the beginning. I mean, if you get five, ten minutes into this film and you don't like it, you don't stick around. It's not going to yeah. change. <laughs> <laughs> I can just hear somebody right now going, "Why would they keep saying bullshit artist?" <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm thinking about getting one of those bullshit artist t- uh, T-shirts that, and then uh, the way that uh, Big Ronnie keeps talking about how Braden would shit all over the place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, so many
0: good things. Yeah, I have not seen the film enough to be able to quote it, but I know that you know. once I get my hands on a copy and I watch it a million times, I'm going to be quoting the phone sex scene left and right. That's, I don't even remember what he says. I just remember laughing so hard in the theater when I saw it. I probably shouldn't be bringing it up because maybe when I finally see it again, it won't be what I remembered. But, but yeah, that's one that stuck out.
2: Well, thank you, Skiz, for coming on and talking about the Greasy Strangler. You're the only other person I know who has seen it that could talk cogently about it. So uh, I'm glad that you were not a bullshit artist today. <laughs> cool. Thanks for having me. So, Skiz, where can people keep up with you? I have this really poorly designed website,
0: www.skiz.net. That's S-K-I-Z-Z. Every so many weeks or so, I will update the schedule page of what I'm up to, which is mostly band gigs, but occasionally film festivals and film screenings. And if I've written something that's been published or if I'm acting in a movie that's showing around it, it's all in there somewhere. How is
2: Ice Pick to the Moon, the documentary about the Reverend Fred Lane?
0: It's getting there. Uh, It's been a long time coming for anybody that isn't familiar with this project. I've been working on it since 1999, so... Just about everybody who knows me uh, has heard me talk about this film. And the uh, fourth rough cut was just finished yesterday. It's finally under two hours long, but I still have about 25 minutes to cut out. And those are, it's 25 minutes of some pretty painful cuts, I fear. Killing all your darlings? Yeah, yeah. Just trying to figure out, like, whatever's left right now, I want, but I can't keep it all in there. It's better to not have enough,
2: I guess. Well, you just do, like, show and make it eight hours long.
0: Yeah. You know, that idea comes up on every film that I make, and I'm always kind of glad when they're done that I didn't go that route.
2: Multi-part PBS special that runs all week during Pledge Week? Yeah. Well, I just
0: figure, like, the amount of interest in the 90-minute versions of my films, that's what makes me glad that there aren't eight-hour versions. Because <laughs> there would be even less interest.
2: If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us
0: on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net and thank you for listening.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This very store here is where Cool from Cool and the Gang worked before he exploded onto the disco scene. Anyway, this is the end of Big Ronnie's Disco Tour. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, come again soon.